Okay, so so many things that we could talk about in our study of Hosea, these four chapters, and all of the things that we could talk about are important, but we can't cover all the things. So what I really want to talk to you about is the knowledge of God and what it means to truly know God and the blessings of that and the curses of failing to truly know him. Um, I'm sure that from your study this week that that was your big thing that you took away, um, that knowing God. So some of you were with us when we studied Deuteronomy, and even if you weren't with us, you probably have heard of the Shema before. And I want you to listen to it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. So Moses begins the Shema with, Hear, O Israel, pay attention. He's got really something he's wanting you to know. And he starts it out, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I've wondered sometimes why he started that way. Why not just start out, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Why did God think it was so important for his covenant family to understand that? Why not just the rules? Well, one reason was that he wanted you to understand that it was an exclusive relationship. He was not like the polytheistic culture they were around. He was telling him he was one God. He wasn't a fake or what I like to call an ungod of the badites. He was the real true God. He was the creator of heaven and earth, God Almighty, who had set you apart to be his people. And he wants you to love him with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. Now, he did this not because he needed to, because God did not need anything, but he did it because he wanted us to experience his glory and beauty and majesty, to reflect his image, to know him, and to love him forever. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, says this, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? Knowing God. Eternal life. So I want us to look at the beginning of Hosea 4 and see how this is related to the Shema. Hosea starts out, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. Like Moses, Hosea is saying, Pay attention. I have something to tell you. But instead of saying what he is required, requiring of them in the Shema, He's telling them that they haven't upheld their end of the bargain. Instead of saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your might, he states this, there is no steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. And the result of breaking the Shema, which Jesus in Matthew 22 calls the first and greatest commandment, is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, breaking all bounds, anything goes, you be you, do your own thing. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. And note what Jesus also says, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I don't think there was a lot of loving your neighbor with that going on. It's no wonder that boundaries were broken and wars and murder were rampant. They were ruining themselves. 
When I think about the image of a whore that God so often uses in his, in his word um, and that he uses here in Hosea, I don't think what comes to mind is not someone that is beautiful with a full life. You imagine, I imagine, a ruined life. You can see that picture in your mind, can't you? And Hosea says, a people without understanding will come to ruin. They were ruining themselves. And God was ruining them too. And they were doing it all because they didn't know him. And as hard as it is to hear these things, I want you to listen to some of the judgments that God pronounced on his people because they did not hear his word. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat and not be satisfied. Ephraim shall become a desolation. I will pour out my water, my wrath like water. I will carry off and no one will rescue. I will remember all of their evil and I will bring them down like birds of the heaven. How did they get there? Well, Hosea tells us it's because the priest led them there, like people, like priests. And this was not the first time this has happened. In fact, the very first priest of Israel, Aaron, was the one that crafted the golden calf and then built an altar in front of it. You know, Moses was up on Mount Sinai, and he was taking a little longer than what they thought, and the people started getting anxious and untrusting. And so they wanted some ungods, I guess. And you think, what? After all they had been through, after being delivered from Egypt and parting the Red Sea and the pillars of fire and cloud and the raining of manna and providing water from a rock, and we hear this story and we incredulously think, really? But honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, when things don't go as we planned, we often become anxious and untrusting, and we question God's plan. Sometimes we think, we just want a God that will go along what we think, what we want to do, and we question his goodness and actions. When we're in those situations, the last thing we need are our spiritual leaders going along with our cockamamie ideas. We need them to stand for truth, not for bending to culture's desire and influence. But many of the priests and kings in Hosea's day had rejected knowledge and forgotten the Lord. This is sounding very 2022-ish, isn't it? They were idolatrous, immoral, greedy. And like the Pharisees that were to come, they had turned God's law and rules of worship, rules that were designed by God to help them, to teach them to know him. Well, they had turned them into mindless rituals, reducing the worship of our glorious God into something no be better than the worship of the Baals. Oh, they made sure they got their sacrifices in. But Jesus says in Matthew 23, they did not practice what they preached. And God says, what I desire is steadfast knowledge, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God wanted their hearts. The conduct was the product. Well, these priests didn't really know or love God. And instead of teaching and guiding the Israelites, they betrayed him, them and Yahweh by feeding on the sins of the people, by cherishing whoredom and wine. They were stubborn and they were joined to idols. 
They were prideful. They banded together. They were in cahoots with one another. They spoke lies about God. They did not cry from their heart. They cut themselves. For what? For grain and wine? And it goes on and on. And now they couldn't even return to God because they were so bogged down with their sin. Well, this amazingly sounds like Romans 1. Y'all bear with me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they were without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they changed they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise uh, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not do. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceitfulness, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, in God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, they give approval to them. As I said before, conduct is the product. John says, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And remember, what are his greatest commandments? To love him with all of our heart and our soul and our might and to love our neighbors as ourselves. God desires steadfast love that we refuse to give, but he lavishes. God is our covenant keeper. God who loves his own with a steadfast love, even though we're a stiff-necked people. God desires for us to know him, not because he's some ogre in the sky trying to make us miserable, but exactly opposite of that, that he is our loving father who knows exactly what we need. And if we examine ourselves truthfully, exactly what we want. For deep in our souls, we long to be truly known and truly loved. Listen to how David describes this in Psalm 139. I'm not reading the whole thing. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot obtain it. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I am awake, and you are still, and I am still with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. When we know him, we delight in our ways. Jeremiah says, but let the one who boasts, boasts about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. We can walk in the everlasting ways of God, knowing him and being known by him, loving him and being loved by him, confident that all he has for our lives, sickness, yes, even COVID, war, political turmoil, financial woes, marital woes, child woes, natural disasters, and so on. It's all for our ultimate good and his glory. We've seen what the Lord wants, and we've seen what he abhors. And because it is immutable, he is immutable, it is the same today. We must pray for our nation. We must pray for ourselves, our family, our friends, our neighbors, to know him, to love him, to obey him. If we ask, he will give us a capable heart. The truth is, I'm way more like the Israelites than I like to admit. admit. What things in my life am I willing to give up? What am I willing to do to know and love Christ more? Because if I'm not giving it up, willing to give it up, it is an idol. It's no different than a golden calf or serving Baal. I've got some things that I've been pondering these days. Some of you may relate to them, and some of you may have entirely different things. But these are the things I'm thinking about. What about the things I read or watch? Are they influencing me to love God more or culture? Am I slothful or diligent in serving the Lord? How has social media and the internet changed me? How do I use social media and my, the information I get on the web to God's glory? Am I willing to be different, to be set apart? Am I willing to talk about hard things to my kids or my grandkids or my friends? Am I willing to listen to the Holy Spirit when he convicts me of sin? Or will I just go along with it because that's what everybody else is doing? Well, I say to myself, that must be okay. So-and-so's doing it. Do I long for holy things that have true power to make God more known to me, to impart to me? Or am I like the Israelites described in um, 2 Kings 17? They wouldn't listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been, and they did not believe the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them they should not, they should not do like them, and they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. I want you to listen to how Eugene Peterson describes this verse. They pursued meaninglessness and became meaningless themselves as they followed the lifestyles of the nation that surrounded him, a practice that the Lord had warned them not to do. Their lives were nothing, and they were living false lives. 
I pray that we do not live a meaningless life. Janine told us in the opening talk that 2 Kings 17 is a history of what happened to the Israelites. It is a sad history, but it is not one without hope. Even though God had to exercise judgment on his people, it was not a final judgment. He was saving a remnant for himself. In these four chapters of Hosea, there is accusation after accusation, judgment after judgment. And at first glance, it seems as if God's people are doomed. But God had promised a seed that would crush the head of the serpent. He had promised Abraham that his descendants would be as the stars in the sky. He promised a true and everlasting king from the line of David. And he promised to give his children, his true children, a new heart, a heart of repentance. And we see a little glimpse of this promise in chapter 5, verse 15. God will return to his place until, who knew until was such a pretty great word, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek earnestly his face. It implies that there would be a time where they would turn. So in all that wonderful truth that God made a way for his people, that he is faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness if we confess our sins, we must be careful not to presume upon his kindness. As Jimmy said in his sermon on Sunday, grace doesn't give you the permission to sin more. It gives you the power to sin less. I'm also going to read for you. I know y'all don't like this, but I want to read um, part a, a prayer from the Valley of Vision. And I felt like it was really appropriate for today. And so you don't really have to bow your head during this, but you just can pray it along with me. Oh, my forgetful soul, awake from thy wandering dream, turn from thy chasing vanities, look inward, forward, upward, view thyself, reflect upon thyself, who and what thou art. Why here and what must soon be? Thou art a creature of God, formed and furnished by him, lodged in a body like a shepherd in his tent. Dost, dost thou desire to know God's ways, O oh God? Thou injured, neglected, provoked benefactor, when I think upon thy greatness and thy goodness, I am ashamed of my insensibility. I blush to lift my face, for I have foolishly erred. Shall I go on neglecting thee when every one of thy rational creatures should love thee and take care to please thee? I confess that thou hast not been in all my thoughts, that the knowledge of thyself <clears throat> as the end of my being has been strangely overlooked, that, I've ne- that I have never seriously considered my heart need. Although my mind is perplexed and divided and my nature perverse, my secret dispositions still desire thee. Let me not delay to come to thee. Break the fatal enchantment that binds my evil affections and bring me to a happy mind that rests in thee. For thou hast made me and canst not forget me. Let thy spirit teach me the vital lesson of Christ, for I am slow to learn and hear my broken cries. Amen. Thank you.